We are not different people at work uh, and in our personal life. We're always the same person. You know, they say like, bring your 100% to work. Always bring 100% to myself. I cannot just switch off part of my um, personality and not bring it there. Like if someone is uh, generally funny, they will keep being fine during the meetings. If someone more on uh, like pedantic side, they're gonna be like that through the projects and they're gonna be like that through the meetings and everything. We're gonna be always 100% there. And welcome to the podcast Human, the Designer, a show where we explore the human behind the professional, what makes them passionate about their work and what drives them to become better. With you is your host, Angelos. And I'm your other host, Eve. And today we will be welcoming another guest to the show, and we're excited as always. She is the head of product design at Adyen, a fintech company with a fast-growing product design team. She has more than 10 years of experience in building brands, solving UX and UI challenges for companies like ING, Nordea, Allianz, Investment, and KLM. She's originally from Belarus and for the past 10 years is living in Amsterdam. She believes in simplicity and building a strong connection between businesses and users, driving organical growth of a product. Her passion is helping scaling design teams with diversity and equity in mind. In her spare time, she enjoys nerding about wine over a plate of smelly cheeses. And I do like the plural in that part. <laughs> so people, please give us a warm welcome for Olga Mishina. Hello. Yay. Woo-hoo. Welcome. Okay, for having me. <laughs> hey, welcome, Olga. Nice to have you here. Yeah. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. It's uh, an amazing weather in Amsterdam, which doesn't mm. happen often and we had a really shitty spring so mm-hmm. it's been a long awaited warmth <laughs> all right i heard that it's quite windy there is that true yeah it's it's even when it's warm it's windy but i was just talking today to one of my designers and we were like i told my therapist that i don't want to see her for the next few weeks because it's finally sunny <laughs> <laughs> yeah what we would like to do here is to get to know you a little bit Uh, as we said, the human behind the professional. So uh, I would like to start by asking you, what is your personal origin story in the world of design? So like, uh, how do you trace your creativity back to your uh, childhood? My childhood. I think in childhood, um, when I was in kindergarten, um, I had this nickname from the teachers there. They were calling me a lawyer. Um, because <laughs> because uh, I was always trying to protect everyone who'd been mistreated or mm-hmm. um, somehow abused or, I don't know, if there was a fight, I would come to try uh, to uh, pull it down and talk to everyone. If the teacher would forbid someone to play with a toy, I would always kind of like, you can't do this. We can play with all the toys we want and things like that. So... I think at some point, I don't think this feeling ever kind of left me. And mm-hmm. what I'm doing right now uh, with product design, it's uh, kind of advocating for the users and for the businesses and trying mm-hmm. to find this balance in between them. So I think if you would go like really, really deep in childhood, the main notion is still there. Mm-hmm. Advocating for equity and uh, good stuff. <laughs> Maybe you had a intuition perhaps towards um, not managing people, but maybe like uh, leading people in a way with better principles. Like you should all treat each other well and, um, and be kind to each other. Yeah, I guess so. But um, I don't think it happens because you've been taught or you've been told to do it. I think we mm-hmm. all as humans have a natural calling for having things um, mm-hmm. equal and accessible and um, good for everyone. Um, lately, um, I think like just a few months ago or something, I've seen this experiment. They were, uh, maybe it was even on Netflix, 
um, there was an experiment with two monkeys, and both of them were given uh, some kind of vegetable. I don't remember, just a general vegetable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were pretty fine, both getting this vegetable. And then um, one of the monkeys started to receive the vegetable, and the other monkey uh, received grapes. Well, grapes, objectively, better than just generic vegetable. And both monkeys got really, really upset. Even the, the one that received the, uh, the grape and the one that received the vegetable, they both saw that something very unjust happened there. They both did the same task and they received different thing. Mm-hmm. So I think this feeling of um, justice is deep inside of us. And we do mm-hmm. feel when things are not right, even though sometimes we don't recognize them immediately. So this feeling is still strong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, re- it reminds me of, of uh, well, just the idea of having good intentions in general. Um, that there's, uh, if you take it very far, of course, good intentions have their disadvantages as well. So in wanting things to be fair, it, it is quite a complex thing to, to get right. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have like personal stories from when you were a kid, when you wanted to do something right, and then you were told this wasn't right or, or whatever. Yeah, I think from the childhood, um, they all like we've always been told this mantra to treat people the way you want to be treated. Mm. And I think like growing up more and more, I realized this is so very much not true. Yeah, mm. you should treat people how they want to be treated, not the way you want to be treated, because yeah. we all come from very different like backgrounds, stories, desires, and it's really hard to guess. Uh, what people want and uh, I think the best thing we can do generally as humans and also as kids like we talk we ask uh, we don't guess much we're trying to think to, to the childhood I think there was always like we had this little circle when we were deciding which game we wanted to play and uh, everyone had a say in it uh, which game we want to play and we kind of voted for it so that was kind of funny Uh, We had a really big group of children. Um, uh, I grew up, uh, I was born in Soviet Union and grew up there. Um, And uh, we had this um, sort of like residential areas with really high buildings, with apartments, uh, flats. And uh, usually these buildings were built uh, for young families. So, of course, like Mm -hmm. everyone who moved in, um, about 90% had or just had, or uh, were planning to have children. So yeah. our group was like, I don't know, 20 kids. And uh, we yeah. had different groups. But then we also had games where we would play all together, all 20 of us. And uh, we somehow always found a way to agree on things and uh, choose something that would fit everyone. Yeah. That was fun. I think that's very nice to, to get these influences in a way even if it's random, it just happens like with your group of friends, you you agree to things together and you don't want to leave anyone. Those are really, really big life lessons also later on, like in the way how you treat other people at work and of course, uh, in all kinds of facets of life. Yeah, absolutely. I remember a lot of the fear that adults would bring uh, mm-hmm. in children, especially of uh, unknown things or different things. I remember um, because of Soviet Union, people were moving a lot around and in our building moved um, a family. I think they were from Tajikistan and they were very, very different. Uh, They were dressing differently. They would eat different food. um, They would talk Mm -hmm. to each other in different language. And I remember that adults were really, really suspicious. But as kids, we were so curious and we immediately uh, invited these kids to play with us. Of course, there were some older kids who already were a bit more influenced by this fear of unknown and the fear of different. But I remember that the youngest, the the younger you were, the easier you were accepting all these new people or different kids or people coming from different areas. Yeah, I remember this really vividly, actually. That's that's really nice, yeah. I can imagine, um, well, you don't know this or you might have checked this, but I am Dutch, Uh, but I didn't grow up in Netherlands. I, I grew up in Switzerland and then I moved back to the Netherlands to study. But I can imagine you uh, moving to the Netherlands and getting to know the culture also came with a lot of difficulties as well in getting into the culture, let's say, and creating your own sense of, well, you're you're not really Dutch. You are an expat, but you're also mixing in. And, you know, there's this whole kind of procedure in in becoming part of 
your environment. But yeah, it'd be interesting to hear how how your uh, experience of having a, a different kind of culture of people coming into your village when you were a kid and how you then later actually moved somewhere else and how you experienced your own, you know, you being the different one uh, somewhere else. Yeah, Netherlands weren't really my first experience of going for a prolonged time abroad. Mm -hmm. I left my parents after I graduated from the high school and uh, first I went to leave uh, to study at university in the capital Minsk. Um, um, of course, it's not a different country, but it's kind of different. It's a big yeah. city, yeah, it's a lot of different things. And then after a year there, I went uh, to the Lithuania to study there for four years. Um, uh, there is a long story about how my university was closed, but maybe for another time. Mm. And um, during that time when I was living in Lithuania, I actually went for one year to study in Greece uh, for exchange program. Also like really different culture, really different things. And I think moving around, um, it kind of makes you more flexible in accepting other people's culture, other people's way of living. And also trying different things, um, you kind of start to absorb it in one way or another. So I think like by the time I moved to the Netherlands, I wasn't uh, that much of an original Belarusian person as I was before. It was a little bit of everything, a little bit of all those places where I've been and all those people that I communicated with. And um, when I came to the Amsterdam, it was my first time in Amsterdam. I've never lived there before. I even though I haven't mm -hmm. visited. I just had a hinge sort of uh, that I will like it here. Mm -hmm. And when I came, I remember the first few months I was biking around. I still were looking for the job. Uh, it was a bit hard. But I remember I was in love with the city. I really liked Amsterdam. It has, I don't know what it is, but it's some kind of vibe mm -hmm. of a small, big city. In a way, <laughs> and I generally really like Dutch culture. Uh, it was really easy to get into it. I think after ten years, I, I see how maybe some of the things um, I will never get, or maybe I will never um, assimilate fully to that. Uh, I still don't speak language really well, um, but it's uh, it's half my mistake because it's just too easy to speak English here. It is, yeah. <laughs> I've been working with the international company, which is everyone is also building, bringing their uh, a little piece of themselves, um, mm. a little piece of their culture. And I just find it so fascinating. It's it's so interesting, like how people see different things. Um, they can be from the other side of the like of the planet, and they will still understand each other when you would make a joke or you would try to translate uh, a saying that it's, it's really hard to translate but how you manage it's I, I don't think I'm that original Belarusian person that I was when I just left my parents house I'm a mix of all those different cultures people I met languages I tried to learn and failed <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think that, that goes for many people when I, I know also for me for example that um Although I've been living in Finland for 14 years, I haven't learned the language. Um, I can I can stay behind the fact that everyone says that it's uh, one of the most difficult languages. So it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I do remember things like because you were mentioning about um, how you you were living uh, as a child in in Belarus and like you had those big buildings. And I don't know if every building has it had its own. Um, playground but but here in Finland like this is what I show when I first came and I was I was amazed because I was like I would love it if I was here as a child like basically yeah. we were playing football at the street and then we had to go on the corner if um, if a car was passing for example <laughs> and you know we were getting shouted from people because we were playing there and then sometimes the ball would go to a balcony or whatever you know and here, like the kids get to have their own playground on their own yard. And like, wow, what's that? Yeah. Yeah, we have this. Yeah, we had uh, each building in front of it had a big playground because there were a lot of children. Like, imagine, I don't know, there are 100 apartments and all of them have a kid mm. yeah. or two. And so, of course, they uh, were leaving a lot of space for playground. But of course, not all of them had nice setups. Some had a swing, another building would have, um, I don't know, the thing when you go down, how was it? Slide? Slide, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the other one would have something else. And of course, 
like you would go to different places and as a kid it would feel like you're going really far it's a different country it's a different group of kids and you just yeah. assess if you're going to be accepted there so it's uh, it's an interesting dynamic <laughs> what about um school for example when you were at school like did you pursue any um arts classes or or hobbies or did something moved you towards the direction of a designer or did you Uh, stumble upon it later on or yeah in this sense i'm really grateful to my parents about that because they were like um let's try everything you can mm-hmm. try everything you can try swimming painting dancing mm-hmm. playing piano all those things so i get a chance to do like a little bit of all those things uh and um i enjoyed it all except the sports stuff uh, i was really hating the sports stuff. and i hated the piano i really hated the piano mm. <laughs> but It was like a common thing that the kid back then had to go and do the piano or any kind of instrument because yeah. it was kind of considered that later in life you will know to, how to organize yourself better. I don't know if it's actually true or it actually helped, but... <laughs> I'm one of those examples. I, it didn't really help much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I tried a lot of different things. And then at school, I was kind of fixed on that I will work with languages and I wanted to like be a journalist. I wanted to write a newspaper, things like that. And uh, um, at school, like in the primary school, we used to do, it was like um, a wall newspaper. Mm-hmm. So you have to actually find a theme for it and you have to like write an articles, you have to draw everything, like a big like headline and everything. Mm-hmm. So I was heavily involved in that thing. We would always get together with friends. We will make this uh, huge piece of A0 paper and uh, our paint colors and everything would do it so I think like that slowly transformed into uh, making a proper newspaper in high school and uh, uh, it was uh, we used the software it was Quark Express I think (laughs) (laughs) make me feel old (laughs) Uh, yeah it does make me feel old when I say that (laughs) But there was this uh, software called Quark Express and we had the special room. We could go there after school and like write an articles and design a newspaper and then go to the publishing house. They would print it for us and then we would give it um, in a school to everyone. I think we even like took a small payment for it. I don't remember like how many cents it would be now, but we still get paid for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember uh, at that point, I was like already thinking that I really enjoy making newspaper more than I enjoy writing into it. <laughs> so I think that's how it actually shifted my um, this, like decision uh, because I, that was the year when we were deciding which university to go. Mm, yeah. um, and it would be like either I go to linguistics, you go to journalism and things like that, or I chose media and visual design. Okay. Was that the correct decision, uh, retrospectively speaking? I think so. I mean, I'm pretty happy right now. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> I mean, you will never know because uh, you never know. Like every little decision you take is taking you on a slightly different path. Mm. So, mm. yeah, I will never know if what would be what would happen if I would take totally different decision. I mean, I don't know where I would be, which universities I would be studying, which countries I would be leaving, and. But yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying the, the, the decision. <laughs> yeah. Um, so about the studies there, um, what are the things that you really enjoyed doing a lot or like that you were passionate about? I really enjoyed all those uh, theoretical classes. I was really mm-hmm. into semiotics. Uh, I was really into art history, gender studies, because um, at our university, you had to get first um, this uh, basics. Um, mm-hmm. We had like philosophy, art history, semiotics, um, all this like theory of media, theory of uh, visual culture and things like that and also we had a lot of basics for color theory um, typography um, composition things like that Uh, so we actually started to do the actual design very late uh, I think only on the third and fourth year of the studies and the fourth year was really the basics 
And that was really fun because we get to play uh, with the paper, like how can it take just white piece of paper, cut it in a few pieces and uh, press it and it will take an amazing form. Um, or uh, we had to do this crazy exercise and um, color theory. Mm. We had to, uh, by hand, create uh, 20 by 10, 20 centimeters uh, squared thing. Um, the gra gradient from two opposite colors to black and white. <laughs> and oh, yeah. you had to do it by eye. And our yeah. teacher, she was amazing. She could see every little, like, if your color wasn't right. So you had to, like, cut it out and place a new square on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was amazing but i think like now like i was painting the walls the other day in my house i was like this is not right this this is not working <laughs> this doesn't match yeah. so it's it's a curse but also it's a good thing <laughs> but yeah i enjoyed those the, the groundwork a lot the understanding the deep um reasons of why things are the way they are why we perceive things one way or another like in semiotics like how do we read all those cultural signs and what do they tell to us i think that was the most interesting part of the study yeah and the art history was crazy we had a ruthless teacher for art history uh, at some point, I think I had to remember all the emperors of Roman Empire, and we had to write it down. Uh, so, I mean, I wouldn't remember them now because it was like mm. uh, you learn it, but then you forget after you pass the exam. But it was interesting. <laughs> uh, I, I was just wondering because you're now, of course, head of head of product design or head of design at Adian. How, how do you say it? By, by the way, is it Adian? Adian. Dutch word, actually, uh, or uh, I think it's Dutch Suriname mixed word, which stands for starting over. Uh, and that's what our founders, uh, because they had company before uh, mm. founding ADN, and for them it was starting over. So they, that's how they chose the name, which was, uh, I find it pretty cool. Uh, yeah. No one really knows how to pronounce it. It's been mispronounced times. <laughs> I think I thought it was Adayan because the, the the Y could be the long long J, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> but I was I was just wondering from from being in that position now. When was it that you really started learning more about? Because uh, I think already as a kid you probably were doing that and in school with a newspaper and everything. But the really managing things together with other people, also managing people. You know, is that something that that came up in in the media studies as well, or where did you really find the passion to to kind of do that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, at the university, I've always been, uh, always been that uh, one person who actually does the project when it's a group project. <laughs> yep. Uh, so yeah, no, I, I think it's uh, I'm a bit of a control freak uh, in a sense. I, I like to know how things are going to happen, and uh, I like to plan them. I I enjoy spontaneous things. I do. But I really like to plan things and I really like to organize things. I organize my holidays. I organize my album pictures. I organize my music into playlists. I like to organize things. I like to put them in order, in something mm -hmm. understandable, in something that I can easily explain to someone else as well. Yeah. I saw an elaborate checklist of yours on Twitter. So. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think as a head of product design, it's, it's, it's just a natural progression of everything that I've been doing before. Yeah. Organizing the projects, uh, going from a simple challenges to more complex challenges where you have to bring together a lot of people. You have to bring together a lot of knowledge from different resources and uh, put them all together. Uh, mix them up and uh, in the end to have a solution that works for everyone. Not an easy task. I, I enjoy it. <laughs> what was your first job in design, by the way? My first job in design? I was a graphic designer in a publishing house. We were doing magazines. This publishing house, they have a contract with the government organizations. And we had to do a lot of like 
government promotional materials like a best uh, a new national park that you need to visit or a new historical monument that they're opening and they're promoting and uh, the the most uh, boring part of the job was uh, we had to do uh, different um, you know like when you used to go to the government I don't know like how is it in Netherlands they don't have it really anymore because everything is digital but usually you have to fill up a lot of forms and um, like medical forms or I don't know tax forms or anything else and uh, so we had to design those and we had to we were printing them with the risograph I don't know if it's an English word but it's uh, it's a really weird technology I don't think anyone uses it anymore (laughs) but yeah it was like a lot of forms a very Mm. mundane boring forms (laughs) Yeah. So, so that's something you'd you'd really enjoy doing again, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now, if you're putting it like this, I'm starting to feel where it's all coming from, <laughs> because I work a lot with forms. I will, I'm uh, at IDM. I'm pretty much in charge for the onboarding, which is KYC forms. You have to fill your legal entities, addresses, um, I don't know, residence, uh, other things. Mm-hmm. God, I'm still in forms. <laughs> By the way, um, how did the switch happen from the graphic design in the more traditional sense to designing a bit more uh, digital stuff? Like, obviously, the tools were um, similar in a way, perhaps, but uh, w- where was the the switch? How did it happen? My main working tool was uh, Adobe InDesign. Mm-hmm. I was a queen of Adobe InDesign. I knew all shortcuts. I knew all um, combinations. Uh, mm. I can so I can put semicolon just by using some <laughs> combination of letters there. I think at some point um, I was working in a um, design agency, and uh, we started to have more of uh, like lending websites or like simple websites uh, for the companies. And again, I got into it and just naturally because I didn't consider it that much of a change uh, because you still have a page, you still have blocks of text and pictures. And uh, I didn't feel that it was much of a change. It was just different medium. Before my blocks of text and pictures were printed and uh, in web, it's just on the screen. So I started to do that and slowly I, I just did more and more of, the, of that work. So it's from graphic design more to like web design, even though I I don't know a word in coding. I have no idea mm-hmm. how it's done. I mean, I know some basics. I know how it works. But if you would ask me, I wouldn't be able to write the most simple HTML, like past body, I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I was just like slowly changing the medium like it was less and less paper and more and more screen and then Mm -hmm. at some point um, I was like a lot of people started to do uh, the apps and uh, it all looked cool and interesting and it was so dynamic and a lot of things were changing there I was it looked exciting and I started kind of slowly reading about it maybe practicing on my own and uh, telling people that I'm actually interested in this kind of work and at some point, a friend of mine, uh, he was working at Callum, and he called, he's like, listen, we urgently need someone for our mobile app designer, um, your graphic design, graphic designer, would you do it? Like, yeah, sure. Yes, I'm in. Even though I haven't done any apps, really. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I got the job. Uh, I passed the interview. And I was really scared <laughs> to do all that, but I also was really excited. And like the first few months, I just found as many courses as I could online. I learned all about the human-centered design, about user research, accessibility, all that stuff, because I was like, okay, app sounds like a very extra step from for the new medium. And um, yeah, I was just like studying it all at night just to be able to do something during the day, something that I wouldn't yeah. be that much ashamed of. <laughs> um, of course, if I would look back, I would find like a bunch of mistakes that I did back then. But I'm, I'm glad I took that leap. And I'm really happy that people who hired me back then also took uh, sort of, they believed in me and they trust me that I could do that. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. So that was really cool. And from there, it just uh, it just started because after you work for a company like KLM, uh, it's the main uh, airline in the Netherlands. Yeah. It it uh, adds an extra start to your portfolio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's how it went from there on. From there, I went to the. Uh, big agency um, it was cognizant and because it's uh, like a consultancy agency yep. you work on a lot of projects in a very short time and you really grow your portfolio you really grow your skill set because you work with a lot of different clients you work with different challenges um, it, it really kind of career on steroids uh, if you go to consultancy <laughs> and after consultancy I was like really tired I really wanted mm-hmm. to in-house I really wanted to deep dive and stay with one problem face-to-face for a prolonged period and that's how I ended up in IDN. Would you recommend to other people uh, joining the agency life at some point for example I haven't been into an agency team ever and I don't know if I will do it in the future but I'm definitely interested but would you like recommend to someone to join and see, for example, design from that perspective? I think it's a cool way um, to see a lot of different projects and a lot of different challenges in a short time. So (laughs) if you don't have a lot of experience and you're very, very junior and you just want to kind of learn everything or a little bit of everything, I think agency is a really cool way to go. Because if you come in-house and maybe it's not the company that have i don't know they have strict um, uh, procedures or maybe they didn't set up procedures it's going to be really hard to grow they, they, you, you've been, you will be given i don't know a small assignment and you would get sort of stuck with it and after two years and you still wouldn't have something cool to show in your portfolio for your future um job opportunities with the agency you will have a very thick folder <laughs> of things <laughs> Yeah, I was just reflecting on my own kind of situation. <laughs> I guess, well, people do say that there's a bit of a difference between agency and consulting somewhat. Mm-hmm. Agency is more like you get the project and you work on it and you bring it back to the to the customer, let's say. And I'm in a I'm more in a consulting agency uh, where we are just, you know, I've been in the same project for more than a year now. Like in that sense my portfolio hasn't built up that quickly. But yeah, it, I guess it also depends what kind of stuff you're working on. Uh, I've seen that if you're if you're more on the, you know, service design side, it could be that you go from one project to the next quite, quite quickly with design sprints, for example. Um, but yeah, I, I guess... I'm wondering what kind of uh, stuff that you were you were working on that that you learned a lot from those different things every time. Yeah, for some reason they decided uh, that it would be cool to pull put me on all fintech projects. I don't know yeah. why. <laughs> Maybe because uh, I was good with forms. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so basically uh, we had a lot of tenders that we needed to work with so, uh, as an agency. And uh, first they would give me uh, like all airlines and uh, there would be booking processes and things like that. And then slowly uh, uh, there would be one airline, another airline. You would just have to mock up for them specific um, uh, challenges. I remember we had this uh, really cool small airline, I think in Finland. And it was famous uh, that it was the only airline that would fly it all the way to the north, even in the shitty weather condition. And it would be basically like a, the only connection of those uh, north, far north towns and families, the only way to visit them. I always try to like um, research a background story for every company we would make um, the proposal. So at least we have some kind of emotional connection with them and yeah. we understand them a little bit better. So yeah, we would do uh, like airlines proposals, bank proposals, um, investment companies proposals. So this thing, um, uh, sometimes you get to work with their team and you get to interact and uh, work with them. Sometimes it would be like really screaming into the void. Uh, You have no idea what's happening on the other side. So yeah, these things like teach you how to establish connection, how to understand those people, how to understand their clients, uh, how to understand their challenges. 
Um, so I think that's why jumping from the project to the project was interesting. Mm-hmm. It also sounds like what what you had with KLM this kind of this feeling of trust directly from from the people hiring you that that uh, Cognizant also probably really gave you. And I can imagine at least I believe that if you give someone the trust that then they excel a lot faster because well yeah people make mistakes and they'll find out you know absolutely uh i think this feeling that you've been trusted in, you, in your work and you're being supported gives you so much energy and uh, kind of gives you strength to try new things and not be scared of trying those new things yeah. and uh keeps you outside of your comfort zone and but like in a nice way you, you don't get stressed overly and so you get burned out and don't try anything anymore after one first fall yeah exactly yeah, yeah. what is the thing that you enjoy most uh, in comparison to being in an agency beforehand to uh, leading a team of product designers for example in an in-house team um, I think the biggest difference is that I'm not an individual contributor anymore. Mm. And, uh, my work doesn't depend on me anymore. So I think everything, every success, if, if there would be any success with any project that I have, is solely depends on if uh, people I work with uh, feeling good, feeling inspired, uh, feeling supported, mm. um, if they have enough resources to do a good job. So my job is not that much lying right now in delivering a good design and more like uh, supporting people delivering good design. Yeah. And I think that was the biggest shift uh, from going from the individual contributor to the manager, that your work suddenly, um, success of your work uh, lies in a completely different thing. And I think this was the biggest challenge also. Because before, um, it, it's really easy to sleep in like micromanaging people and like checking on their <laughs> work. And I really don't want to be that person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, like I'm, I'm, I'm involved, of course, in understanding uh, what is the problem, helping to shape it, uh, bringing all the stakeholders together. But it's not anymore um, in being involved as much in the shaping the final screens or shaping the final look it's more of uh, helping with the direction helping with inspiration making sure that there are no obstacles on the way of my designers in a way i think my work is more of like being a glue uh, between the business design and attack and kind of making sure it all sticks together well (laughs) yeah i love that word by the way like you know being the the glue (laughs) <laughs> Blue, yeah. it, it reminds me of when you when you were talking about the whole empathy of treat others how you feel they should be treated and in this case there's a lot of that that you have to do at a, at a daily level um, figuring out what what each person in your team needs to to be better to uh, to work better together with the others and is is there certain like specific things in in that? part of your job that you really enjoy or that you feel is really difficult or you know what was one of the biggest challenges that you that you ran into for that specific kind of you know the motivational aspect of how do you get people to really be at their best yeah um i think when i just started with the leadership position uh my main my main understanding of like how to work with the PMs or how we can use a deck is to explain them how product design works. So if they understand how we work, then they will work with us better because they know what we can provide. And I think it was like the biggest misconception in my mind that I had because the best, like I found the best way to actually get other stakeholders to work with the product design better and actually reach out to us proactively is to give them understanding that we can solve their problem, that we can help them achieve their goals. Because I think there is a lot of thinking that design is just exists on their own and works only for the users. And uh, we just, they are in a way of business of reaching the deadline or in the way of tech of uh, shipping mm-hmm. something as soon as possible. I think the moment we shift that, that we're actually there to help them with velocity and we are there 
to help them with understanding which direction to go. And we actually can help them to save resources and save time. Um, that's when they will become our best allies and our best supporters as a product designers. Now, every time, if I want to get other stakeholders involved, I wouldn't tell them how product design works. I will try to tell them how we can solve their problems and that we're actually there to solve their problems. The business problems, uh, the tech problems, we can help them to understand which solution needs to be built and which solution doesn't need to be built. Um, how to help business better achieve their goals uh, through the users and through their um, comfort. So I think that's, that's, again, coming back to the empathy that we really need to understand what, they, what are their day-to-day -day problems, how can we help them. And only then they will reach out to us back and see us as, a, as an ally, not as a nuance. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of taking it one meta step further. Have you noticed for yourself that you employ this kind of mindset for your own kind of, what do you want, you know, in your own life and everything like that. Maybe very deep, but I was just wondering if, you know, a lot of people, they, or a lot of designers, they design at work, but when they get at home, it's a mess and whatnot. And it's, I'm always interested in seeing, does the, do some of these habits translate to a personal sense of reflection and things? Um, well, I think so. I don't think like I can just switch off the way of thinking when I close my computer mm. um, because it's, it's all just keeps translating. I mean, I'm learning Italian right now and uh, the way I organize my document with all my notes, uh, the other day I was showing to my teacher like my homework and she was like, what are you using? How, how do you organize that? <laughs> And everything is like, I have like my uh, uh, little menu with the, all the topics that uh, I've been studying, uh, with the homework that I've done, as everything is more organized uh, by the date and the topic and everything. And I have a recap every few lessons of everything that I learned. <laughs> so I don't think it stops at work. It mm. continues everywhere. I mean, it's the way I renovate my house. It's the way I study languages. It's the way I organize my holidays. Uh, sorry if I'm getting a little personal, but it's it's that's one of the things that we're trying to do with the, the, the finding out who the human is behind the designer. So seeing seeing how things translate to your own way of being, your own sense of self, and things sometimes as well. No, definitely. I I, I think we are not different people at work uh, and in our personal life. We're always the same person. Um, you know, they say like bring your hundred percent to work, like. I always bring 100% of myself. I cannot just switch off part of my um, personality and not bring it there. Like if someone is uh, generally funny, they will keep being fine during the meetings. If someone more on uh, like pedantic side, they're going to be like that through the projects and they're going to be like that through the meetings and everything. We are not going to be, we don't, we don't end up probably, yeah, of course we have slight differences, like how we present ourselves and, uh, we might not do the same inappropriate jokes at work if we would do it with our friends. Mm. But, uh, still, we are the same human being and uh, we're going to be being it and we're going to be always 100% there. Mm. Let me ask you a final question um, before we move to the next part. Um, so I met you in, uh, at Config Europe. And uh, we both gave talks there, but would you like to tell us a little bit about the talk that you gave there and, um, you know, how it came to your mind and, and, and what was the subject there? So I've been thinking about public speaking for a long time um, and also like sharing the knowledge that uh, I have and sharing the experience that I got through uh, working in different places. And I really couldn't put it together. I really was struggling with finding what is my thing. How can I put it out there? Because usually everyone who gives a talk, they have some kind of um, backbone of the idea uh, that they're sharing. There's always one single idea in every talk uh, that people sharing. And I was kind of really struggling to find which one is mine. I, I couldn't put it together. I was like, yeah, I know a bit of this, I know a bit of that, but what, what united all? 
And then I was talking uh, to one guy that I work and he was like, think about it as a journey, as a personal journey. Think about it as a sort of um, what went well, uh, what, what didn't go well, uh, where did you fail, uh, where you think you succeeded. And think about it in, uh, in a way um, that you have a story to tell, you have the journey to uh, share. And that's how I came to the talk that I gave um, there at the config. Uh, it was uh, pretty much about the places where I worked and the experience that I had there and the lessons that I learned from each of those places. And yeah, some of them were good. Some of them were not that good. And also that talk uh, started with a personal story. It was a story about how we're organizing my holidays. And uh, uh, it was like we had a bunch of friends in different countries and we wanted to come uh, to have a trip on a boat uh, for seven days. And there were a lot of planning to put into it because we needed to think food ahead, uh, airports, all that stuff. Uh, and yeah, there were a lot of organization. And I kind of realized when I was organizing that uh, journey, it was very similar to how I organized the projects at work. Uh, because then you need to talk to all the stakeholders. You need to figure out what they need. You need to figure out how, what kind of technical constraints do you have. You need to figure out what budget constraints you have and then pull together a nice journey that everyone will enjoy in the end. So that was pretty much the, the base for the talk. I thought about my personal journey and then I thought of like all these projects that they uh, went through and what I learned from there working with the teams. And it was a lot about personal relationship and a lot about the empathy, a lot about um, building connections with people you work with. I was actually wondering still, uh, before we go to the next section, you, you mentioned that you really like wine and a plate of smelly cheeses. What, what is your favorite combination or for specific context? Ooh, this is such a hard question. Yeah. Yeah, I think, so the, the deeper you go into wine, the more you understand that you don't have a favorite. <laughs> and <laughs> It's like knowledge. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's always about the context. It's always about who you're drinking with, what is the temperature around you, what is the uh, mood, what is the energy. And also wine helps to bring that mood and that energy. Um, so yeah, it could be a nice, uh, warm summer day, then you will choose one wine and one cheese, or it could be a warm evening in the, uh, in the winter where you would sit at home, uh, I don't know, maybe with your partner, then it would just completely different thing, different cheeses, because you would have to take into account that you probably want to kiss them after that, so probably not too <laughs> smelly. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a really hard question. Uh, and I keep trying new things, so it's, it's always like expanding this palette of weird things to taste mm. uh, and try to appreciate them because uh, it's an acquired taste. <laughs> mm. what, what, what's the uh, the newest thing you want to taste? Oh, um, usually it goes like this. I would go to, uh, on Saturday, I would go to a market and there is this cheese stand and I would buy a cheese that I usually like, uh, something like Comte, uh, the French one. Uh, and usually there, is, there are really nice um, uh, people selling those cheeses and they would always recommend something new, like, oh, we brought this new thing. It's like, it's really smelly, something that you like, probably would like, and I would get it and then I would smell it. And then I would go to a wine shop also here nearby. And I would talk to a guy there because he goes to all the wineries and uh, he collaborates uh, with the producers directly and there's always like a very small production so I don't know like maybe a few hundred bottles um, like this and he would help to choose something from his selection for that cheese and uh, then it's it's always a fun experience because uh, also I really like natural wines lately and it's always a surprise because the idea there is um, whatever happened in the vineyard <laughs> going to end up in some kind of wine. Uh, there is no control whatsoever there because like big productions, um, because they want to guarantee the taste. It's like a design system, you know, like they know yeah. you need to add a speck of this, this and this and this, and then you would get this taste in the end. With natural wine, it's it's chaotic, it's not. It's uh, whatever happens there. <laughs> there was a discussion in, um, in Twitter 
lately about like what kind of metaphors do you use for design system but i think no one brought the wine yet but it is kind of true like if you want to have a very a cohesive experience with wine you have to have certain uh, rules there right like so that's quite yeah. interesting i brought the example of pizza I was like you know you can't have any other metaphor other than pizza like it's it's the best <laughs> <laughs> well it's a combination of a certain components right uh, yeah. wine uh, like like for example uh, a really famous wines like my Chandon. everyone knows how this bottle is going to taste regardless which year which place where you bought it doesn't matter it's always going to taste the same because they know exactly which parts they need to add in order to achieve that taste so would collect um, I don't know, um, grapes for different years, mix them together in order to achieve that one taste why everyone buys that specific uh, brand. Yeah, my, my parents, they had uh, one wine from a specific year that they tried to get year after year. At some point, it was just the prices just kept going up, of course, because there's less and less bottles. Uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's really like when you know, okay, there's a specific year that would, had a specific flavor. Hey, Angelos here, and I would like to talk to you about how you can support us. What we do is free to consume, but not free to create. If you would consider joining our Patreon, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash jointfrontiers and become a patron for 4 euros or 4.90 in US dollars per month. You will get early access to articles and podcast episodes, an invite to our Slack community, your name and title at the website in the about page and shout out in a future podcast episode, a chance to shape up our community, and exclusive behind the scenes content. If the idea of a monthly or a yearly subscription is not your thing, you can visit jointfrontiers.com support where you can make single time donations through PayPal or buy us a coffee. Welcome back. Let's move on to our next part where we present interesting things like articles and stories that are happening in our community. And Eve, do you have something for us this time? Yes. Um, a few years back, uh, Angelos, you and I actually had the privilege to meet uh, Josh Brewer from Abstract App, the, the company in the US. And uh, he released an article about two years ago um, about a very important topic that actually it's it's becoming or it is has become very topical in the last what is it last two years now uh, in general but the the article uh, on linkedin which uh, he calls is inclusion is a choice um was published january 22nd 2019 anyway it's it's about uh how as a starting company um and getting uh you know, funding for, for the company and really starting to found the basis of the company, Josh and his co-founder, uh, Kevin Smith, they wanted to really focus on building an inclusive company. And this was also together with a person called Eileen Lee uh, from Cowboy Ventures, I think it was. As a founding company in Silicon Valley, they felt like they had a responsibility to do things better uh, and, and show Silicon Valley that things can go better uh, as a more inclusive company. So if I am correct, one of the the stats that they have uh, that they had at that time at least um, was that two out of three senior leadership and half of their investor board identified as women. 24% of their uh, people identified as African American or Latinx, uh, and 14% of um, of their company was people. Uh, that were LGBTQ+. plus, So they were really kind of focusing on, well, creating a very inclusive, diverse team. To them, how they're building abstract is just as important as what they're building, perhaps even more so. And they, they mentioned also remaining accountable as they grow. I, I don't know any stats at the moment, how, how uh, diverse and inclusive they are at the moment. But I, I remember also very clearly uh, that their logo, uh, at some point, they were one of the first, uh, as an app logo, to have the rainbow shown around 
the the app logo on the desktop i thought hey that's that's really cool you know they're really putting it out there but yeah so directly from the article they also mention we believe that our success as a business is directly connected to our ability to to build an inclusive team and what they also say is we we want to change how companies are built in silicon valley and use our success as proof that the tech community as a whole can do better and uh, so one of the reasons i also brought this up uh, is that uh, of course i do a little bit of spying here and there before we we meet our podcast uh, interviewees and uh, i noticed that you have a very strong sense also olga a very strong sense of um, this diversity and this inclusion in your mission uh, of at least it sounds like it's part of your mission your vision towards building a better world um, and so uh, yeah tell us confirm uh, debate whatever uh, how how do you feel about this topic nice uh, article I highly also respect this position um, and uh, in a pose to uh, we are for diversity, but we want to hire best talent. As a lot of people say, uh, I think this is actually a very wise and uh, smart thinking of how you're hiring and how you're forming your teams. Because when you when you do hiring, um, you're looking for uh, which skill gaps you're trying to close in your team, which uh, talents you need in your team and diversity and ability to think from different points of view is one of them so when you hire for this and this is the gap that you need to close that's who you need to choose to have a diverse team to have different points of view to have different talent to have different backgrounds it's extremely important not to have the homogeneous uh, teams that will probably miss out on a lot of opportunities and a lot of ideas generally speaking i'm always being kind of heavy on this topic. Um, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, I did have to study uh, gender um, studies at university. So it's uh, once you're there, you can't go back. Uh, you see it everywhere. You feel it everywhere. Um, and also uh, as being a woman in uh, design, it's haven't been easy before. I do remember um, when I was working in a advising agency, it was uh, 8th of March. Back home, it's... Uh, holiday uh, less associated with the women's rights and more associated with just giving flowers to women and I remember our art director he said uh, thanks to you I now know that uh, women also can do design it's it's been almost 15 years ago but still um, it's not that long ago when this yeah. opinion existed and they still exist uh, if you go back to post-Soviet countries it's really heavy there about these topics. I, I think we're in Europe doing way better and at least we're proactively thinking about it and it's becoming more of a norm to think about it and to have this hiring procedures in place to strive uh, for um, equity in companies, to strive for the best hiring, um, to have some procedures. Um, how do we hire? How do we form our pool of candidates? So we can ensure that we hire the best and diverse talent at the same time. So yeah, this topic is quite dear to my heart because uh, my my journey was not wasn't always easy, uh, and I kind of hope that I can make it easier for others. I try to mentor some people at work also um, and outside of work and help people to discover their voice and uh, help them find the job and find the confidence to seek their dreams. Um, so yeah, it's an, it's an important topic, uh, even though it's uh, cliche things to say, but it's, it's still very much complicated in a lot of companies. We don't need uh, to go far. I mean, Google fired their three, like last uh, three researchers for AI that we are promoting, uh, that uh, that we're actively speaking out against the inequality and about and against. Uh, flaws in their AI that they're building and instead of looking after it they were just being silenced and fired so yeah 
yeah, we can talk as much as we want, but until we actually do something and we talk about it and take actions, nothing going to happen. A lot of companies talk about uh, that they want to be inclusive and they want to build diverse talent and uh, bring uh, equity in their teams. Uh, but I really don't see a lot of com- companies actually committing into it and putting very specific goals to say that by then we're going to have this and this. Usually it's just a conversation that we're going to try, we're going to strive, uh, we're thinking about it and we're supporting. It's not enough. The company should be as concrete about these things as they're concrete about their business goals. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And uh, in, in many cases within the companies, it happens that usually um, this um, efforts about doing, I don't know, some uh, initiatives around diversity and equity and inclusion, uh, usually put on the shoulders of those people from minorities who are already having it hard, having the career and uh, going up and have to carry this extra burden of promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion. Not a lot of companies actually hire uh, external people, professionals, who are educated and have the right skill set uh, to build those procedures uh, and do it mm. separately as a full-time job. Usually it's an extra burden on the minorities uh, within the companies because, I don't know, if you're Black, you, you can represent all Black people. If you're a woman, you can represent all women. If uh, you're gay, you can represent all the LGBTQ plus community. That's not how it should be. These people actually should be given extra time to do their work, not an extra burden to promote something. I was I was thinking you were mentioning um, when you're when you're hiring as well to kind of figure out different skill sets or gaps that you that you don't have in the team. Um, I can imagine that at some point you also don't always realize which gaps that you're missing. So I'm wondering, is there a certain process, a certain way of thinking of, of finding those gaps? Is, is it just a kind of, you know, learning by doing kind of thing or, or figure it out whilst you go? Or is there an actual process around that that, that, that that you employ to figure those things out? I don't know if there is actual processes, but I think every company or every population of every company should reflect the population of the world. So just by um, knowing that the percent, certain percentage of the world is uh, LGBTQ+, certain percentage of the world is uh, women or non-binary uh, or any other type of uh, genders, um, there are different nationalities, there are different races. So that's what should be represented in your team if you want to reach the global uh, market. You should have people yeah. uh, from different um, uh, economic backgrounds. If you hire only Harvard uh, alumnus, you're going to reach only Harvard alumnus in their mindset. If you want to reach countries uh, with different economic uh, situation, you have to hire people with similar backgrounds so they can represent and they can tell you exactly how it can be done, how do these people feel. Because we need this empathy and we need to understand each other's backgrounds. And it's way easier if you lived through that experience and you can uh, share it while as you work. I can imagine that uh, with the new accessibility guidelines that came out not so long ago, uh, that that also for quite a lot of people, it's kind of been like, oh, all right. We have to make websites uh, easy for people who can't see to, to go through them. And the market is huge. It's an interest of every business to tap into this market. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's not just uh, something that we would do out of sheer um, humanity in ourselves. It's good for business. It's good for everyone. Everyone would win from, from, from the world, the digital world being accessible to all kinds of different disabilities. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's not just uh, because we want to be good people. It's, it's good business opportunity. Thank you, Olga, so much for joining us today. And this was a very, very interesting talk that we had. And getting to know your perspective and your uh, human self behind the, the professional. Before we close, uh, I would like to ask if you would like to be found, where can people find you? 
Oh, uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. I really enjoyed the questions. I think I had a few revelations about myself while uh, talking and answering that, which is uh, extremely fun. Um, you can find me on Twitter, Olga says stuff. Uh, that's, uh, I don't post that much. My uh, Nick, I think, is uh, lying. I don't say that much, actually. <laughs> on Twitter, mostly reposting and liking. Um, but yeah, that's uh, pretty much uh, my professional outlet. outlet. Um, and also LinkedIn. Feel free to get connected. Cool folks, welcome. <laughs> awesome, thank you. What about you, Eve? Anything else you have in mind? Not specifically. I was just wondering if there's anything else we want to plug uh, in the podcast. Any links, any um, interesting I don't know. things? Uh, I think that we're um, we're pretty set. Uh, we have some podcasts that we can share, and um, Olga's talk from Config EU. Do you have anything else you would like to plug? Um, besides the fact that it was absolutely joyful conversation, um, I don't know. I think that's pretty much it. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was uh, really interesting to talk to you both. Uh, and answering all those personal questions. <laughs> Hopefully not too personal, that you were not feeling uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Thank you. All right, everyone. See you next time. Bye.